I saw a salad bar, and I realized my name spelled backward is salad. So, got, well, with an extra L. The second L is silent. Uh, all right, God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Lord, thank you so much that we get to be here this morning. Thank you so much that we get to here be with men who love you, who sold out, who want to give their entire lives to you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that we don't have to wonder where you want us to go or what you want us to do. We don't have to wander aimlessly. We have the promise of your word, and more than that, we have your Holy Spirit to understand it. Please, God, resonate in this time. Resonate in our words. Resonate in our thoughts. Resonate in our fellowship. Lord, that we would be people that wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, that we go out of here prepared to execute your directives. We love you, God, and we ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so my key takeaways from this, that we are to have the same mindset, the same way of thinking, the same attitude as Christ, number one. Number two, that he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the privileges that accompany his deity. And three, that we're told to simply act and think like Christ did. Okay, So it brings up this idea of phroneo, or mindset. And it's to have the same mindset, the same way of thinking as Jesus Christ, okay? So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, it's, it actually kind of amazed me. So it's right after, and I think everybody's already heard this one, where Peter makes this amazing confession that Jesus is the son of the living God, that Jesus is the Christ. And, and within a couple seconds of that, you know, Jesus is like, hey, I have to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to suffer and die under the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. And a lot of people take Peter to task and, you know, for you to, you know, like tell, you know, argue with the Lord. But there's this idea of a, a legitimate concern for someone that he cared for. And he's like, ah, may that never be. We're not going to allow it. But then Jesus turns right around, right, and says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> that kind of hurt, right? Okay, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the th concerns of God, but mere human concerns. Now, the interesting thing is, is Jesus connects two ideas here that, are, that could be a little intimidating. One, mere human concerns, Satan, right? And I don't think he's saying that every one of our mere human concerns are satanic. I think what he's saying here, and it's reinforced in the next few verses, is that our mere human concerns are eminently co-optable by Satan. That the things that come naturally to us are co-optable by Satan, but for the mind of Christ. And then we can see that here in Romans 8, where it's talked about those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. Those who live according to the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. And then it tells us in uh, Colossians to set your thing, mind on things above and not on things below. Then we're told in Philippians, and this is kind of terrible, is those whose destiny is destruction, whose God 
is their stomach, whose glory is their shame, have their minds set on earthly things alone, with, with no mind of Christ associated with it. And yet we're told in Romans and here that we're supposed to have the same mindset as Christ about these things. So what is the point? Okay, The first requirement is that we have the same mindset or attitude as Christ, first, I think, toward human concerns and our relationships with one another. The second is that though we have access to the very power that created the entire universe, I mean, Jesus says that we can command mountains to throw themselves into the sea, that we're not to use those powers or that authority to our own advantage. Okay, so when Dr. Mark Bailey was here um, from Dallas Theological Seminary, he introduced this idea of a chiasm, which I was like, I hadn't even heard of it before. But it's this idea of this pyramidal structure in, in the Bible, okay, in, in a number of different places where you have paired, parallel, bookended ideas that are, that are equivalent that gradually go together until you get to a central contextual idea for that chapter or that book. So before when I studied the Bible, I would look at one verse or one word and then in a micro sense and then try to expand it to a macro sense. Well, how, what does it mean in the terms of the larger Bible or the context? This is a way of looking at more of a meso sense in, in an individual book or set of verses. So what I did was I used some of the verses from chapter 1 and chapter 2 to try to come to a central contextual idea. Let's see. I don't, I don't know. We'll see if it worked or not. Okay. So, okay, the first set of parallel ideas. In each one of these, you'll see the first one is what we do. The second one is what Christ does. So the first part is, even in tragedy, Paul's chains advance the gospel. Christ is preached in chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. In the other side of that passage or that other parallel verse, Jesus made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross in chapter 2, verse 8. Okay, so what does this mean? What does it explain? It explains that even our tragedies, perhaps maybe especially our tragedies, advance the gospel. Okay, our tragedies, as real and terrible as they are, advance the gospel Christ has preached. We think about it. Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' resurrection is the gospel, right? And no other religion sees what appear to be tragedies in such a beautiful light, okay? When I consider the sufferings of and, and the tragedies of people just in this room, just in this body, loss of parents, loss of wives, loss of husbands, loss of children, loss of jobs, right? What other system of theology allows us to engage with those with greater meaning, even if the purpose of those tragedies isn't immediately clear to the people that are going through them. And when I consider Paul in prison, or when I consider Christ on the cross, and you think about it from, a, from my perspective, from a human perspective, from a fleshy perspective, they seem like, like defeat, right? Until I look at it from Christ's perspective, until I look at it from a heavenly perspective. And then they take on then they, then they, they, I appropriate them, and they really are victories. Okay, so the second one, second set of bookended ideas. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay, to live or to die is to be with Christ in heaven forever, in chapter 1, verse 21. But then on the other side, Jesus came down and took on human likeness, in chapter 2, verse 7. Okay, so Christ's death brings us up to experience life with him, forever 
but Christ's love also brought him down to experience life with us and as one of us. Okay. Next set of ideas is that we're told to honor one another above ourselves. Okay. Uh, verse in chapter one, verse twenty-one, and this is definitely a YDH. So I stole that completely from, from Joe last week. Yeah, okay. Yes, but how? That sounds good. I'd like to go get me some of that. Okay, but how? I tried it. Don't work. I can't do it. I, it selfish Dallas wants everything for himself, right? And he explains how that Jesus took on our, the nature, the very nature of a servant. And what's crazy is that in Mark ten forty five, he also reinforces, he says that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. So then we have the next set of parallel ideas where we're told to have or take on the same mind as Christ in chapter 2, verse 5. And he made himself nothing, emptied himself is the, the word, kenosis. He emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the privileges of that deity. So we're sons and daughters of the king. We're fellow, I mean, it blows my mind. We're fellow workmen of the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and we're just told, to follow his example. And this always resonates closely in my heart because my last job in the Marine Corps was teaching over at Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. And the, uh, the motto of uh, Marine Corps OCS is Ductus Exemplo. If you guys know every, uh, I don't know why all our mottos need to be in Latin, but you know, <laughs> make them less accessible. But anyway, Ductus Exemplo. <laughs> Leadership by example or lead by example, right? So what, what hits me is that if he though he deserved far better, accepted far worse for my sake, then I should be prepared to accept whatever comes, even though I deserve far worse for his sake, for the sake of others, and for the sake of the gospel. When I consider Paul in prison or Christ on the cross, that's what I think, what I think we need to appropriate when we're thinking about this. So this brings us to the center of the chiasm. That he who, being fully God, did not appropriate his own deity to his own advantage. Now, this amazes me because I do believe we've been given the power to heal. We've been given the power to command mountains to move. We've been given the power to raise the dead. But these are all for the use of the kingdom, for the advancement of the kingdom. I always thought it was strange. Why would God depict or picture the outputs of the Holy Spirit as fruits? Or why would he symbolize the believer in Psalm 1? as a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Trees don't eat their own fruit. Trees don't eat their own fruit. The fruit isn't for the tree. Right? That the fruit that comes of that is for the advancement and service of his kingdom. The, I think I used to get it mixed up. The fruit of the Spirit isn't our reward. Right? Our reward is safe and secure. It's in heaven. Our reward is eternal. Our reward is God himself. That the fruits of the Spirit are just equippings, their talents, their assets for us to use in the advancement of the kingdom. So what I'd like to do is work the chiasm backwards now. Okay, So it starts off, he who being fully God did not appropriate his own deity for his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. And we're told to take on the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ, who took on the very nature of a servant. We're called to honor one another above ourselves by taking on that same nature. He 
took on human likeness. While we're here, we're to take on Christ likeness and bring others with us. He obeyed even to the point of death. And this leads us to the last part. That even our tragedies, even our chains, even our sufferings, nevertheless advance the gospel and Christ is preached. And that's our ultimate goal. So that's maybe uh, hopefully clear a little bit in the abstract, but what does it look like in day to day? So I was listening to 105.1 the other day, and I swear I wish I could uh, try to, uh, to give this, give a attri attribute this to the correct guy, but he brought up this idea of the heavenly mind, the human mind, and the hellish mind. The heavenly mind, which I believe is what we're talking about today, which is the mind of Christ. What does it look like day to day? What does it look like in our interactions, in our love, in our family, in our work? What does it look like in humility or pride? Well, the first one, we have the mind of Christ in our interactions with others. It's the ability to return good even for evil, which I've talked to a lot of my Muslim friends. It, this doesn't make sense. This, is, this doesn't, doesn't resonate well, right? It's in terms of love. It's illogical love. It doesn't make sense. It's sacrificial love. It's agape. It's Christ-like, okay? What, what does it look like in terms of pride? It's a servant pride. And I thought a lot about this. It's not self-loathing, but Christ-raising, okay? It's not that we think less of ourselves. It's that we think more of him. And more than that, it's a servant pride. It's uh, in that Roman sense of, uh, of a slave wanting to please his master, right? And it's this idea that ends with this thought that well done, good and faithful servant. That's what it, it yearns to hear more than anything else. What does it look like in terms of hum humility? It's an illogical humility, right? It doesn't lower our stature, right? It just realizes our re the reality of our stature in relationship with Christ. It's illogical because it removes other people from the humility. We're not comparing ourselves to other people. We're only comparing ourselves to Christ. And it's always struck me that Peter, he finally meets, you know, the, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the Messiah is sitting in his boat, and he finally realizes it. And, wha and what's the first thing he says? Get away from me. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I think that's the humility that we're talking about. It's the awareness of, of who we are, not lowering our stature, realizing our stature in relationship to Christ. But then there's the, then there's the human mind, you know. And I think it's going to sound pretty logical going across here. When in terms of our interaction with others, Somebody does good to us, we do good to them. They do evil to us, we do evil to them. Okay? In love, it's reciprocal, it's contingent. I love those who love me, I hate those who hate me. It makes sense. When I talk to my, my Muslim friends, it's like, ah, yeah, sounds about right. Okay? Uh, when, when we're talking about pride, C.S. Lewis calls this simple vanity, oval fault. For those in the ranger school, spotlight ranger, that should resonate with, with a few people in here. It's this idea, spoof, spotlight's on, and you start performing. Right? You do your acts to be seen by men. That that's who your audience is, right? Kind of makes sense to me, okay? Then we go over here to humility. It's a logical humility. Humility is attractive, right? The problem is, is that when I've tried it, you know, before with just the human mind, it's a false or a manufactured humility. It's trying to bring other people in and try to measure yourself. Now, what's interesting is that all this makes sense to me, right? But again, going back to Matthew 16, 23, Jesus said, Right? These mere human concerns are imminently co-optable by Satan. 
And you can see how they can quickly be, the human mind can easily be brought down to the hellish mind. You notice I put that in red? Okay, anyway. Um, so the hellish mind. It's amazing. I don't believe that even most of the worst people on the planet, I don't think they live here. I think they visit here. And I think here's the worst part, that even Christians, even we, visit here from time to time, can be brought down to this level. So our interaction with other people, we return evil for good. Now, in terms of love, it's an, it's an undeserved hatred. It's an amnonic hatred. And I, and I appropriated that word, Amnon, from the story of Amnon and Tamar from 2 Samuel 13. I mean, it breaks my heart. Because you see in the, in the verses before this that Amnon's talking about that he's sick with love for Tamar, his half-sister, that he's obsessed with her. And as you, as you read the description, you realize that's, he's not, so he's not in love with her. He's in lust with her, but he's not in love with her. But that's not the tragedy. The tragedy, the one maybe that breaks my heart the most is in 2 Samuel 13, 15, where it said, after, after he raped, after he raped his half sister. Then it says, then Amnon hated her exceedingly, such that his hatred for her afterwards was greater than a love wherewith he had had beforehand. That's an undeserved, undeserved hatred, and it leads to this diabolical pride, where self-love is so profound and consuming, right, that it despises and preys upon kindness and goodness and gentleness, right? And that leads to this idea of illogical pride, or the only thing that can save, the only thing that can comfort diabolical, the, the hellish mind, is the pain of others. It can't ever be brought up, but it can only bring others down to comfort it. But what does it look like? What, is it, what makes him mad? What makes him brings him joy, these different minds? You know, what does it look like at work or in love? Or I should say in marriage. And so Alec uh, brought up a few weeks ago, and this really has helped me a great deal at work and everything else. What made Christ mad? I, I, I went back through just to check, right? What was it? The only things that he look, looked like he got viscerally angry about was when God's character was impugned, not when his character, not when he was impugned. When God's character is impugned. So the opposite of that would be, what would, make, what would bring us joy is when Christ is honored. What does it look like in marriage? It's love and respect in spite of, right? Remember, it's an illogical love. So it's, I love her when she's not necessarily being lovable, and she respects me. Even when my deeds aren't necessarily worthy of respect. What does it look like at work? It looks like a mission field. And I talked about this at the Global Leadership sum, uh, Summit. Uh, last summer where it was talking about being the pastor of your place of business. Now everybody knows that's the pastor. I mean, they might not call you that, but it's this idea that I really care a little less about who gets the credit as long as Christ gets the credit for my work. And then we come all the way over here to the right, and it's the potential for contentment is infinite because our contentment isn't bound to our circumstances. But what does it look like at the human mind? What makes us mad? Personal affronts, unfair treatment, people being offensive. We get offended. It's in the name, right? So they're, they're jerks. We respond, okay? What does it look like? What brings us joy is when we're honored, right? What does it look like in marriage? It's reciprocal. It's contingent. She respects me, so I love her. I love her, so she respects me. Inverse. 
she doesn't respect me, I'm not obligated to love her. Obligated to respect me. At work, I'm praised for what I do well. I'm punished for what I do poorly. And my contentment is directly commensurate with my circumstances. The only problem here is I think that we can see this is imminently cooperable by Satan. What happens when we get cancer? What happens when, when we lose our job? What happens at work when we're not praised for what we do right? Or when we're punished for doing right? Or when we're, we're ignored? Or when somebody else is praised for doing something wrong? What happens in our marriage when she's, when there's just a, usually it's a breakdown of communication. She's being respectful. I just don't realize it. Or I'm being loving. She doesn't realize it. That's when it's cooperable, imminently cooperable by Satan. And it brings us down to the hellish mind, which is it's a zero-sum game. Their benefit comes at my expense. What brings them joy? Nothing. Nothing. And I've, if you haven't met these people, I could show you a few, right? You know, now they, they seem like they come to come through my conference group at work. But the key thing is it's strange. You could literally bathe them in donuts and gold, and they'd be like, I want to eat platinum and jellies. You know, and you're like, all right, it, it, you can't, th they won't be made happy. But then it gets worse in marriage. It's predatory. It's the more that he, she respects him, the less he loves her. That he, he figures, I've treated her so terribly. If she still respects me now, then must be, I must be the best that she can do. And if, I, if I'm the best she can do, then, then clearly I can do better than her. Uh, seriously, I've seen uh, women, uh, you know. The more he loves her, even though she's disrespectful to him, then she assumes, well, if he still loves me after my disrespect to him, then literally I must be the best thing that he can do, and I can do better. It's predatory. It makes no sense. At work, it's illogical that they receive very little benefit from the praise received, and then at their potential for contentment, it's impossible. It's the impossible that it's given. The only thing that can do happen is their pain can be eased a little by the suffering of others. That's it. And I don't think we live here, but I think we visit it from time to time. Okay, so capacities, as we wrap up here, we have Christ's total capacity to love because it's entirely other-focused, focused entirely on God. That's the mind of Christ, the mind of hell, where self-love is infinite and boundless and focused on ourselves, and it also produces infinite capacity for self-loathing or anger or bitterness. But then we have us. Somewhere in the middle, right? And I think when we're born right here, that our capacity for other love is pretty low. You know, when you're a baby, you are the center of the universe. You don't, you don't have the capacity to think and love and care about other people more than yourself. You just don't. But then, let's hope, hopefully, you have good parents. By the time you're a teenager, they've disabused you of this notion that you're the center of the universe, <laughs> you know? And have gotten you to the point where you have at least little capacity for so loving other people or respecting other people. Then hopefully, on a human level, that we're at least able to balance somehow our love for ourselves and our love for other people. But then something really important happens, where we become saved, where we start to be able to love someone more than ourselves, Christ, where Christ begins to build in. And we're told to no longer be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Christ Jesus, to the point where eventually Christ becomes our only focus and our only love. And that only focus and only love of Christ gives us the capacity to love infinitely, to love others infinitely. So that is the mind of Christ. That's what it looks like in terms of these mere human concerns. And that's what it looks like on the ground. 
So, three questions. The first one, there's a phrase in the military that, that officers eat last, rise first, sleep last, and this seems to me to be a little incongruous usually with the authority and prestige that officers and not non-commissioned officers get, right? So the question is, what does this look like day to day with our wives, our kids, our co-workers? Then the second one, Jesus emptied himself, divested himself of his divine privilege for our sake, and we're called to do the same. So what's the difference between humility and false humility? And then the last one is, if we follow Christ like this, won't this just make us doormats? Right? Won't people just walk all over us and, and, and think that we're weak? And so why or how should we address this concern? And does it help to have an earthly or eternal view of the matter? And what's the difference? All right. Thanks so much. Bam, start.